0: And now open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. morning in our Sunday school class, we discussed how Martin Luther uh, read a certain psalm because he was uh, dealing with with a trial in his life, a a large trial going on around him, and uh, responded by writing a hymn. This morning, uh, we look at another composer of one of our hymns, Charles Wesley, Uh, who wrote several of the hymns in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. And on one occasion, Charles Wesley had accompanied his brother, John Wesley, on a mission trip to Georgia. It was in 1735. And their intent was to uh, share the gospel with the Native American Indians. After suffering much for the cause of Christ, feeling little was accomplished on their trip, Charles set sail for home back in England. While at sea, he was caught in a a trial of his own. He was caught in a violent storm, a storm so severe that Charles felt that the end had come. But rather than praying for the Lord to rescue him from imminent death, he said that he prayed for faith, to trust in God, and to comfort the other passengers on the boat. Now, eventually the storm passed, and the passengers all survived, and a number of them actually gave their lives to Christ as a result. And in response to this event, Charles wrote the well-known hymn that we sang as our hymn of assurance, Jesus, lover of my soul. Let me recount the words of the first verse of that hymn for you. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly, where the nearer waters roll while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. You see, Charles recognized that a violent storm at sea is really a great analogy for life. We all go through stormy seasons. The Christian life is not one that is free from suffering and difficulties. But God places us in these storms in order to strengthen and to grow us in our walk with Him in order to strengthen our faith. In Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25, the disciples find themselves in a storm out at sea. And so severe was this storm that they believed that they were going to perish in it. Jesus is with them, though asleep in the boat. And after they awaken him, he calms the storm. This passage really reveals the greatness of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But it also reveals the comfort that we can have knowing that Christ is present with us through the storms of life and will use them to mature us in our faith. Now Luke begins this account... By informing us that one day he, that is Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples. Now Luke, here in his gospel, is not concerned to tell us the precise time that he went out into the boat, but it occurred after he had concluded his teaching to a massive crowd. We learned this from Mark's gospel, and we learned that the the crowd was so great that he had begun to teach them from the boat. He set out in the boat as they all upon the banks of the shore were listening as he taught them. But concluding that teaching, he tells his disciples, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And once again, this story, uh, as we see many times throughout scripture, reminds us of Jesus's humanity for when he had Uh, set sail, Jesus fell asleep in the boat. You see, Jesus was, of course, divine. He was the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. And we will see that more clearly by certain things he does later in the text. But he was a man, a human, just like you and me, though without sin. He had been teaching to massive crowds for no telling how many days and no telling how many hours in each of those days. And Jesus was tired. So tired that he could even fall asleep on a boat and remain asleep through a terrible storm. How grateful we should be knowing that our God condescended and lowered Himself, in order to become like us in our humanity. Flesh and blood needed saving. And so he added to himself flesh and blood in order to bear the punishment that our sins deserve, that we deserve on account of our sins. And so... Beloved, our Savior sympathizes with our needs, having experienced them by virtue of taking to himself a very nature, the very nature of our own. The tired, sleeping Jesus also teaches us the type of dependence upon God that we need to have. The sea is... A dangerous place. The power and force of a body of water can be extremely overpowering. Yet Jesus gave us the perfect picture of what it is like to trust in the Heavenly Father. Of course, there was a calm before the storm. And yes, Jesus fell asleep while it was still calm. That is, before the storm came. But more than anything, we can see here that he was uh, the calm before the storm. We could even say that he was the calm during the storm. For he was sleeping right through the storm as well. He had absolute trust in the Father in heaven. And this behavior should be learned and emulated By believers, no matter how calm the seas of life may be, storms are going to come. Again, learned this in Sunday school this morning. We will experience trials. We will experience suffering and difficulties in this life. But he had absolute trust the Father in heaven. And if we trust in our heavenly Father, then we can have peace and comfort, not only when the waters are calm, but also in the midst of storms. Well, the disciples did not experience this divinely given peace, at least not at this particular moment, not on this particular boat trip, Luke tells us that a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. So how did the disciples respond to the storm? Well, they woke Jesus and cried out, Master, Master, we're perishing. In response to this storm, they became cowards. Their faith was weak, which is precisely why Jesus asked them, where is your faith? They were not trusting in their Lord and Savior at the moment. The Lord of heaven and earth had told them, let us go across to the other side. And they should have expected to get to the other side. Yet they thought that they were going to perish now, I can't be too hard on the disciples. After all, the storm was extremely mighty. In fact, the Greek word for windstorm is also the word for hurricane. Matthew uses the word seismos to describe this windstorm, which is the word for earthquake. In other words, the sea was quaking like an earthquake. It was a violent, very violent storm. The Sea of Galilee, in fact, was prone to producing such powerful storms as these because the lake sits lower in terms of sea level than any other sea in the world. It sits some 7,000 feet or 700 feet below sea level, and it is surrounded by incredibly high cliffs around 2,000 feet. Feet high in places that overlook the lake. And at these heights there is a cool, dry air. But when it's met with the warm, moist air that rises up directly around the sea, you see high velocity of winds can be produced. And those winds travel down the mountains and build force as they hit the sea. With extreme violence. And it had to have been a very mighty storm. Because we need to remember that Peter, Andrew, and John were all fishermen by trade. They were used to being on the water. Used to dealing with storms. And so if these men were afraid that they were perishing. Then we can be assured it was a mighty storm. Now, another reason that we shouldn't be too hard on the disciples is that they did turn to the right person, didn't they? Now, the manner in which they turned to Jesus may have been inappropriate, but they did turn to the right person. They woke the Lord from his serene slumber so that he might save them from the strong wind. We should be understanding of the disciples because we too are often afraid in our weaknesses, in our frailties, when we face certain storms in our lives. But as children of God, we should learn to trust God when we are going through these storms. They are meant for our growth in faith. Do you look at your storms In that way? Do you look at the difficulties, the trials, the sufferings in just that way? How is the Lord growing me in my faith through this storm? How can I be an example of faith? How can my faith be manifested to others in the midst of this storm? R Kent Hughes says, "Storms are God's way of bringing us into deeper grace." And so we must learn that there is never a need to fear, because God is always present. ...with us through the storm, just as he was present with the disciples. Now, it may at times feel that God is not present. It may at times feel as if God is sleeping or not paying attention to our difficulties and trials that we're going through. But scripture assures us that the Lord never sleeps nor slumbers... And it's interesting to note that the cry of his disciples awoke him when this most violent storm had not. You see, not only is he always present with us through the storms, but he always listens to the cries of his people. I'm I'm reminded of Psalm 18, where King David wrote, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Now, notice as I go on reading here from King David, how he uses water, the waters and the seas as imagery to depict his enemies in this passage. He says, the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me in my distress. I called upon the Lord To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked. Because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils. And devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. Then... The channels of the sea were seen. And the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke. O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. What a beautiful, poetic description of how the Lord rescued David from the hand of his enemies. David cried out to God. And the Lord listened and drew him out of the troubled, stormy waters. He saved him from his enemy. You see, our God is present and he hears our cries for help. So we must learn that our God is present, that he hears, but we must also understand that these storms are meant for our good. This storm was necessary for the spiritual growth of the disciples. And so they are for us as well. It was meant for strengthening their faith. After Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves, what did he do? Well, he gently admonished them. Where is your faith? He asked them. You see, the storms of life are meant to strengthen our faith, to confirm To us that God is in control and cares for his people. We should not expect that the Christian life will be free from suffering and trials. In fact, Peter, who experienced this very trial in the boat with the Lord, wrote in his first epistle, chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were were happening to you. You see, we all go through the storms of this life. One moment, all will be calm, and the next moment, a mighty storm hits. Maybe you feel like the waves of illness are pulling you under. Or maybe you feel like you're drowning in financial debt. Perhaps you feel like you're being tossed to and fro by the waves of... You feel in the blank. Maybe you're in a crisis of faith. But if you are in the boat with Christ... That is, if you are united to Him by faith, then you can always be assured not only that He is with you, but that He is sovereign over whatever storm you're facing. Just as He was sovereign over the winds and the waves that day. Now someday, beloved, we will all face the storm of death itself. But our Savior will even see us through that storm, for He has rebuked the enemy of death as well. God has not promised to keep us away from the storms, but He has assured that whatever storm we face, our Savior Is sovereign over it. And this assurance is actually pictured. In the rebuking of the winds and the waves of the sea. This imagery in scripture. What's going on here. On that boat. With the disciples. And the winds and the waves. Was actually imagery. That if they had looked back upon. Their Old Testament scriptures. Would have seen Wonderful imagery that should have bolstered their faith. This imagery in Scripture begins at creation as the Spirit of God hovered over the dark, chaotic waters of creation. Genesis 1, verse 2 see, the waters there were pictured as an obstacle that God would overcome. The earth was without form and void. But God brought structure and order to the earth by a series of creative acts. And one of those acts was making an expanse in the midst of those chaotic and formless waters. So that the waters were separated from the waters, Genesis 1.6. And so that Jesus rebukes the sea in Luke chapter 8 should have drawn the minds of the disciples and even our minds this morning to the creation where God employed his sovereign powers of the great waters and they obeyed him. I think the disciples might have even picked up on this very notion because we're told that After he calmed the winds and the waves, they became afraid. And said, who then is this? That he commands even winds and waters and they obey him. But this text is is really telling us more than just that Jesus is the creator God who is sovereign over his creation. You see, as scripture moves beyond the creation... The watery seas become symbolically associated with that which represents the realm of sin and Satan. At the Exodus, Israel found themselves sandwiched between two great enemies. There was, on the one hand, the pursuing Egyptians behind them, but in front of them was another obstacle. The obstacle of the Red Sea, which had them trapped. But just as God did at creation, in fact, just as he did at the flood in Genesis 6. He separated the waters of the Red Sea, allowing his people to pass through while their enemies, the Egyptians, all drowned in the sea. The Song of Moses in Exodus 15 says it this way. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury it consumes them like stubble at the blast of your nostrils the waters piled up the flood stood up in a heap the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea you blew with your breath the sea covered them they sank like lead in the mighty waters Now, Isaiah chapter 51 verses 9 and 10 speaks of that very same event, the Red Sea crossing, and it likens Israel's enemy Egypt to a dragon, a dragon swimming in the sea that the Lord pierced with the sword of judgment. See, by the blast of his mouth, of his nostrils, the breath of his mouth, judgment comes forth with a word The wind of his mouth, the breath by a word. Judgment comes and puts them to death. Pierces the dragon in the sea. This imagery is really very similar to that 18th psalm that we just read a moment ago. David likened his enemies to the many waters. And when he cried to God for help, God saved him. By doing what? By rebuking. By his word, he rebuked the enemy. He rebuked the waters. Verses 15 and 16 says Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke. O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. It becomes evident that God's rebuke of the enemy is often described as a as a blast of breath from his nostrils or from his mouth. God always rebukes and conquers his enemies by a simple breath or by a simple word. But our understanding of the symbolism of the sea that's incorporated throughout the scriptures, I think... Would be incomplete this morning if we did not briefly mention the prophecies of of both Daniel and the Apostle John. In both books of Daniel and Revelation, the enemies of God are associated even more so with the watery depths of the sea. In both of those books, the sea is the realm from which beasts arise. To wreak havoc upon the people of God. Daniel tells us that those beasts are terrible kings. Representing mighty kingdoms that make war against the saints. But God brings judgment upon these beastly kingdoms that arise from the sea. And he gives one like a son of man dominion over the kingdom of God. In Revelation chapter 19, John pictures this by describing that son of man as a rider on a white horse who has a sword that proceeds from his mouth. The sword is the symbol of judgment. The rider defeats the beast with the sword of judgment that comes from his mouth. He slays all. All who worships the beast. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul describes that beast as the man of lawlessness. And says in verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. There is power in the rebuke of the Lord. And so we see that Christ's rebuke of the winds and the waves of the sea not only portrays His sovereign control over creation, but it also depicts symbolically Christ's power over the satanic forces of evil in this world. And maybe that was a factor in the fear that overcame the disciples in the boat. Perhaps they came to a greater understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ was that day as he calmed the raging chaotic seas that day. This fear was a a little different than the fear that they had of the storm itself. They stood in the boat with the Creator, Redeemer, and Defender of God's people. The storm could only kill the body, but they came to fear the one who could kill both body and soul in hell. And this was a lesson to strengthen their faith. Beloved, the raging storms of life are a result of the fall. Sin brought these storms into the world, but God sovereignly ordained it this way so that His glory would be revealed in the cross of Christ. At the cross, Christ rebuked Him who accused us on account of our sin. And the guilt of our sins were removed so that the accuser could no longer slander the brethren. But this blessing is only for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins. For those who trust in Christ, He has promised to get them to the other side of the stormy sea of this life. But it takes faith to get on the boat. It takes faith. By faith you are united to Christ who will safely bring you to the other side. And you must continue to trust in the Lord as you face the different storms of life. These storms help us to grow in our faith. But when we reach the other side, there will be no more storms to face. When Jesus returns and brings with him the new heavens and the new earth, all will be well. In that glorious place, the realm of Satan and sin will be no more. And Revelation chapter 21 records this glorious truth for us. John, in chapter 21, has a vision of the life to come, and he writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and, listen, the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Beloved, Christ was physically Present with the disciples in that boat on that day. But a little later in his earthly life, he would conquer death and ascend up into heaven. And it is in heaven, Hebrews 6.19 tells us, that Jesus is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Our anchor is cast up into heaven and it is fixed firmly there. It is Jesus Christ. And though the raging sea of this world tries to toss you about to and fro with Christ as your anchor, nothing nothing can hinder you from arriving at home with the Lord. And so cry out to the Lord in faith and He will draw you. Out of many waters to him be all praise and glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. let us pray, Our most gracious God, we thank you for the depths of the wisdom wisdom which we cannot plumb the depths of that you would. Bring about our salvation through sending your son to become like us in every way, yet without sin. To remain fully divine, yet also to be fully human in one person. The person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that you would... Have him to sympathize with our needs. Having taken on our nature. And who would then lay down his life for us. Oh Lord. We stand in awe of your amazing ways and your amazing grace. May we have. Utter confidence that you are on our side and that you understand our difficulties and that you have our good in mind. But even more, that you have the greater good of your glory in mind. And so teach us to be in conformity to your will so that in all things we might give you glory. And that our faith might be manifested as we experience the storms of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.